Hello, we're here. Well, I say we, it's just me and the voices in my head today. I know Lou is supposed to be here, but Lou, you know what? Pray for Lou. Lou is uh, stuck in Chicago at a meeting for the life that he has, the nerve of some people to have a life outside of this. Luckily for you, I don't, but Lou does, and he has he is stuck at a work meeting in Chicago, so pray that Lou doesn't get shot at because... If you're there at the right time of day and in the right place in town and you're the wrong person in the wrong place at the wrong time, I guess, there's a good possibility that somebody in Chicago might shoot at you. So let's pray that doesn't happen. So pray for Lou that he gets home safe and all that good stuff. And no, Cameron is not sitting on the other side of the table either, so you're probably thinking to yourself, why are you bothering me then if it's just you? We already listened to you yesterday when we talked about worldview. And if you didn't listen to me yesterday, shame for shame. Listen to the worldview stuff. It'll do you good. No, the reason I'm here is because I'm here to tell you that a billion plus dollars matters big time. And you may be wondering, what in the world am I talking about? Well, if you looked at the title of this episode, you will see that it is the SBC Primer. Now, I am not speaking in code. I am a pastor of a Southern Baptist Convention church in Rockford, Illinois. A uh, history lesson from, from me, from those of you that don't know, because I don't tell you because it doesn't bother me on a regular basis, and I don't care. Still got to drink my water, though. Um, I was baptized in a Southern Baptist Convention church. I have, I have a Master's of Divinity degree from a Southern Baptist Convention seminary. Um, I have spent my entire ministerial career in Southern Baptist Convention churches, and when I have not been actively in vocational ministry, I was attending Southern Baptist Convention churches. Yes, I have been to other denominations. Yes, I have friends in other denominations, but the majority of my ministerial connections and work-related activities revolve around Southern Baptist Convention churches and pastors. And we are coming up on our annual meeting, or the only time the actual convention actually exists. It doesn't exist the other 363 days a year. 364 on leap years. The Southern Baptist Convention only actually exists two days a year, governed under Robert's Rules of Order, where thousands of us gather together and we vote on stuff. It's, it's the world's largest business meeting, basically. They keep trying to turn it into a worship service, and it drives me insane. But it's a business meeting, and I'm there to do business, to talk about issues, to, to vote on people and positions, and to do actual business things, just like churches—well, just like congregational churches have business meetings— so does the SBC, because we are a loose affiliation of congregational churches. Now, why do I mention billions of dollars? Well, because I'm looking at it right now. I've got my book of reports out for the 2021 Southern Baptist Convention. If you would like to look at it, you can actually go to your app store. So go to the Google Play Store. Um, Apple has this as well. And you can actually download the SBC Annual Meeting app. And in that app, you can look at the book of reports. And you can see where all of the money comes from, where all of the money goes, and how it's supposed to be spent. Well, you can mostly see where all of it goes. This is one of the pet peeves. We're going to get to that. So 
in the fiscal year ending in 2020, total receipts of Southern Baptist churches. This is this is just gonna just gonna wreck your brain. Which I need to look up where in this book of reports is the number of churches because I'm sure it's in here. It's it's somewhere north of 45,000 churches, but it's under 50,000 churches. It's still a pile of people, but. Those 45-plus thousand churches received in undesignated gifts. Now, by undesignated gifts, we mean um, gifts to a church that are not earmarked for something. By law, nonprofits cannot use a designated gift for other than its designated purpose without going through some loopholes. So if you give to a church or any other nonprofit and say, this money is for... X, Y, or Z. It has to go to X, Y, or Z. So when churches ask for money for buildings or for buses, they're going to buy a van for things. That money that you give designated for that cause has to go to that cause. Now, that's designated giving. You also predominantly have undesignated giving. So if you've ever gone to a church and just given them $5 and didn't care where it went, you gave an undesignated gift. Southern Baptist Convention churches received in the fiscal year ending 2020 $11.5 billion worth of undesignated gifts. That's with a B, folks. Billion. 11,598,540. Now, why does the convention matter? Because that money goes to individual churches. So that's the money that goes into the churches. So the money that came through Calvary Baptist Church here in Rockford, the money that came through um, the church, uh, my home church, Galatia Baptist Church in Seaboard, North Carolina, the money given through any Southern Baptist Church anywhere in the country, that is the total that came in. Of that undesignated money, 4.78% of it is given through what is called the cooperative program. This is how the Southern Baptist Convention funds its entities, which means the cooperative program takes in $455,553,027. So just over $455 million. Now, if I am part of an organization that is wielding $11.5 billion and is actively contributing for cooperative use almost a half a billion dollars, you bet I'm going to be in the room when votes get taken and decisions get made. You bet I want to know where that money's going, who's using it, and what they're doing with it. And as, as long as, as in long in ministry as I have been in a position to go, I have gone to the Southern Baptist Convention's annual meeting. Didn't go last year because we didn't have one. Uh, was there in 2019 and 2018 in Alabama and in Dallas, uh, Birmingham, Alabama, Dallas, Texas. Um, 2017 and 16, I didn't have opportunity to go. 2015 in Columbus, I was there. 2014, couldn't afford it. Kids were getting expensive. Uh, 2013, 2012 were what? Uh, Houston and New Orleans, respectively, went then. Before that, I was on staff at a church. Our senior pastor went, so I got the report when he got back. And even then, I read the reports in the years like in Baltimore when I didn't go. Um, in St. Louis, I was watching the live stream to keep up with what's going on. I like going because there's a difference between being in the room and watching a video, and there's a difference between watching a video and reading a report. 
It's always nice to get the feel for what's going on in a room, how the people are perceiving something, how something is being presented, how it is being said, the behind the scenes scurrying. I, I never sit in the front at the convention. I always try to sit towards the side. And what I mean by in the front, I mean, I never sit facing the stage. I always want to sit on the side of the stage because like a couple of years ago, as we were scrambling through in, in Alabama, trying to get to resolution nine on critical race theory, which was just, you know, a debacle, the way that it was handled and the way that it was passed and how that was done. You could actively feel the aggravation in the room as before we got to resolution nine, there was a resolution on condemning some sort of some sort of genocide that was going on, and there was a missionary in the room that I understand his reasoning. But he was intent on adding some other atrocity to the resolution, and nobody knew anything about it. Like, literally nothing, because we were voting on it on Wednesday afternoon, and the atrocity happened, like, Monday morning. So we, we knew nothing about it. And But he was adamant. He wouldn't let it go. And you could, But you could feel the tension in the room as people just wanted him to stop talking. Just like as they tried to table resolution nine and work through it quickly you could actually from where i was sitting on the side you could actually see the people in the back behind the screen scrambling to worry about time and get information i like to see that because it while i don't get to know what's going on behind the scenes i do get to see the mood of what's behind the scenes are they frazzled are they flustered do they know what they're doing are they worried are they trying to get things moved along you, you kind of get a feel for it i enjoy it I'm an amateur sociologist in my spare time. That's why my favorite thing to do is go to the mall the week before Christmas and get a coffee and sit down and watch people lose their minds Christmas shopping. I like seeing how people interact in situations. It's kind of fun. I'm weird. I get it. <clears throat> so with that said, I try to be in the room because there's piles of money changing hands. Piles. I mean, you're talking like Scrooge McDuck money being spent on various mission causes. And this year, we're going to, it looks like, blow past our normal attendance. I mean, if you go back to the, the 85 to 95 range, well, probably 80 to 95 range, it was not unusual to see 20, 15 to 20,000 people at an annual meeting, including a couple of years. I think one of them was Dallas, where they cleared 40,000 people. Well, since we quote-unquote ran off all the liberals, or we just ran off all the quote-unquote liberals, I'll let you decide which how you want to read that historical argument. I have my opinions, but this is not the time. Um, depending on how you read that, the, with fewer things to argue about and fewer fewer people to argue with, attendance has dwindled. I mean, I think we had, was it Anaheim a few years ago? We only had like, or was it Phoenix? We only had like 4,000 people attend. And in the last couple of years, they've been creeping up. Well, as of right now, over 16,000 messengers, which are the attendees that vote, are scheduled to come. That number is probably going to be higher. There's a good chance more than 20,000 Southern Baptist Convention people will show up for the first time in 25 years. And the reason they're going to do that is because we had a lot to argue about. I mean, up until this week, the, con the conversation would have been about uh, Resolution 9 and our understandings of critical theory and critical race theory and the applications to the church. That would have been a big deal. Uh, Lou and I have given you our opinions on that. You can go back and, and find some of our stuff on that. Go back and read the, listen to the episodes. It will, in fact, do you good. Um, we are not the wokest of churches by any stretch of the imagination. Do I understand that there are bad cops in the world? Yes. What should we do? We should fire them, and then we should prosecute them to the fullest extent of the law. But that doesn't make policing evil. And again, I'm not going to get into it. Not right now, anyway. But that's one of the issues. We passed a resolution uh, affirming critical race theory as a useful analytical tool, which I think is ridiculous. But I want to see the argument from both sides, and it's an argument that needs to be had.
We're also having, because of that issue and because of other issues, a contentious presidential election this year. The president of the SBC doesn't wield a ton of power, but the power he does wield enables him to, now follow this, we're Baptists, so when in doubt in a Baptist church or organization, make a motion to form a committee. Baptists love committees. It is one of my great annoyances with being a Baptist, is that when in doubt, we will form a committee. So what ends up happening is the president of the SBC appoints the Committee on Committees. That's a thing. No, I'm not kidding. That committee then nominates the Committee on Nominations. Wait. The Committee on Nominations then makes the nominations for the vacancies of the various boards of trustees of the various Southern Baptist entities. Steez. And if this, and if the convention doesn't like... So, okay. Let's put it this way. Let's just say, okay, 16,000 people go. Let's just say 12,000 people have decided. I'll use my alma mater. Let's just say 12,000 of those 16,000 people have decided, you know what? Danny Aiken's an evil heretic, and we don't like him. So we want him gone as president of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. We can't do that. We, we can't fire Danny Aiken as a convention. Danny Aiken is answerable to the trustees. Now, we can fire the trustees and then go through a whole process of appointing more. That's a different discussion. The control over time, and this is intentional, and it's intentional and it's aggravating because it is good, bad, and it's ugly all at the same time. The convention can't turn on a dime because in order to change the convention, you have to change the churches. And in order to change the entities, you have to change the trustees. And the trustee boards are designed that it requires years to, to turn over a trustee board. I mean, they serve on four-year terms, and it's basically customary that if you want to keep your term, you keep it. So... Most of these people are serving at eight-year stretches. It takes a while to turn to get turnover of an entirety of a trustee board. That's why the uh, the conservative resurgence, again, depending on what side of that you're on, the conservative resurgence really begins what in seventy-eight, seventy-nine, and really isn't completed until the early nineties, because it takes that long to turn over convention entities. Because it takes that long to turn over trustee boards. That's on purpose. That's the real power of the convention president. So we have people from the conservative Baptist network that are running. We have a guy who's a little bit more on the, forgive me, my Southern Baptist brethren, but uh, he is a little bit more on the woke side of things as far as the social justice issues. Al Mohler, I think, is trying to thread a needle that doesn't exist, and it'll be interesting to see how that works. He's just, the, he maybe just be the biggest name and get elected. The one I'm interested in is Randy Adams, believe it or not, simply because the only thing I know about him is he's like me. He wants every penny accounted for. And this is one of the reasons why I go and why I keep trying to keep up with things, because of that $455 million, I can't account for all of it. And that drives me insane. And this is one of the issues that I've had with the convention for many years. And one of the reasons why my church has debated on how much longer we're going to be participants in the convention is because if you looked at our church budget, you can basically get a rundown to the dollar of where everything has gone. And, I, and look, I understand we're a much smaller organization than the SBC or any of the SBC entities. I'm not, I'm not trying to argue that point. But what I am going to argue is that you could look at our budget and figure out where every dime that has been given has gone. And that's intentional because it's open and it's honest. If you grab your book of reports, AC hasn't fully kicked in here. I'm melting, so i got to keep drinking water. If you actually look at your book of reports, and you look, so here we go. Well, who, whose page am I on? I've lost right Okay, here's the executive committee. They get a statement of income, summary operating budget, and that's it. 
It's a half of a page on an eight and a half by 11. My church budget takes up more room than that. For our $80,000 a year, we take up more space than this. This is an organization that's dealing with $5.5 million worth of income. Uh, the International Mission Board and the North American Mission Board can share a page, 8.5 by 11, in landscape or in portrait. And again, you're talking about an organization that's planning on taking in $278 million and an organization planning on taking in $99.8 million. So... 376 in change million dollars worth of income and you can tell me where it's going based on personnel support global engagement president's office mobilization logistics finance travel and meetings human resources training technological solutions that's not transparency now i'm not arguing for randy adams but he's the only one who's actually arguing against this type of system this is one of the issues along with the crt stuff Along with the transparency things, these would have been bad enough, and this would have been enough to get tons of membership and tons of involvement, and you've been seeing that because before this week, we were still over 12,000, 13,000. Again, it's still creeping up, but this week has gone even worse because now we're also dealing with possibility of cover-ups of sexual abusers, which you're talking about of minors and of women, which is uh, – there is no easy way to deal with that. And I'm just going to be perfectly honest with you. Someone comes to you in a church and says, you know, your pastor abused me when I was in his youth ministry 20 years ago, which has happened. There's almost no good way for a church to deal with that. For starting point, you have to confront the man. You have to try to get an investigation. You have to try to figure it out. And again, this becomes the problem because, look. I am not a Me Too person. I am not a Believe All Women person. People lie all the time. Sinners sin on both sides of the gender divide. That's not the issue. My thing is, how does a church handle this if someone is accused? My favorite is, well, he's been credibly accused. I need somebody to define credible. I mean, short of a police investigation, I can't credibly buy. I mean, now if you got receipts and hospital visits and, you know, sworn affidavits from witnesses, I mean, sure, go for it. But short of that, I don't know how any church handles this well, and I think that's been part of the problem, is that nobody knows how to handle this well, and our convention is not top-down. It's bottom-up. So the executive committee and the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission and the, and the, uh, the seminaries, they don't have any enforcement means really against the churches, There's, and they're not designed to, and most Southern Baptists don't want them to. So how do we deal with that? I mean, we can't tar and feather every person who's accused of something, but we also shouldn't be tarring and feathering victims. I mean, if a woman comes to me, my first question isn't going to be, well, what did you do? Was your skirt short enough? I mean, did, were you wearing the appropriate length heels for a woman your age? Because if the answer is no, I mean, see, that's just a dumb question, and it's not the tact we should go down. And look, we've all asked dumb questions at some point. I'm talking about the overall tenor here. What I'm getting at is, we're trying to thread a needle that can't be thread, and that's part of the problem, which is why, to be honest with you, when in doubt – I had this conversation with Cameron the other day. When in doubt, I am a tar and feather first and ask questions later. If you told me that at this convention we had the opportunity to fire everybody and start over, I'd take it simply because I don't think there's enough transparency. I don't think there's enough honesty and openness, and I think there's too many people that have been in too many positions for too long that they have calcified in their ministry. and. 
And I say that as someone who roots for people to stay in jobs for as long as possible. I say that as somebody who, I want to pastor the church that I'm in now until I can't, because I don't want to move anymore. I don't want to move again. I want to plug into lives of people. I want to disciple them and see see them grow and watch their children succeed and watch my community be different because of the ministry of our church. That's what I want to see. And you can't do that in a five-year church tenure. You, You just can't do it. So as somebody who wants that, I'm to the point now where I'm looking at people that have held positions for 10, 15, 25. I feel like I'm doing the any minute I should be saying hike. They've had these positions for all of these years, and yet it seems like things are trending in the wrong direction. So I'm to the point now, fire everybody, open the books, open all the receipts, pull out all the memos, get rid of all the executive sessions, and let's see what's actually going on. Let's see how the sausage is made. You know, we... We had this conversation a few weeks ago at our men's Bible study. I got a good laugh that um, one of the guys that regularly comes to our to our men's Bible study is a um, you know good contributing member of our church. And by and by that I don't mean he's rich and gives a lot. I mean he he's here. He's faithful. You ask him to help with stuff. He helps. He's he's he's, he's just a good guy, good godly guy who's been growing, especially the last you know half decade of his life. He's a farmer, and he gets a kick out of you know people trying to schedule because he's raised cows his entire life and you know he takes them down to slaughter and he's slaughtered hogs and he's slaughtered cows and he's done it on the farm himself and you can't do that neatly i mean you can do it somewhat neatly but you can only do it so much and, and he and i were joking the other day well and talking about it and he's like if some people knew how slaughterhouses and things worked they'd never eat meat again and this is a guy who eats meat and as and I, he was looking at me he goes if you saw what they did to chickens i said i would eat a chicken sandwich on the way home you're talking to someone who hunts deer every year, who has to, you know, clean and skin and gut and handle. And yeah, it's messy sometimes. And they're still delicious. And if that offends you, I'm sorry. It doesn't offend me. So you're just going to have to get over it and be mad at me. I am one. I want to know how the sausage is made. You know, I've worked in restaurants and I still occasionally eat out. I don't do it as much as I used to because I can't afford it, but I can still I don't freak out when I go into every restaurant. I don't panic because and, and I know how dirty they probably are in the back and how clean they probably are not. I want to know how the sausage is made. And when it comes to the convention, I want to know how the sausage is made. And if you're not willing to tell me, then get out and find me somebody who is. You want to get to the bottom of where the convention stands on critical race theory. Get to the bottom of where the people running the convention stand. You want to get to the bottom on what's going on to the convention with abuse and victims and shaming of victims and protecting of abusers and actual investigations. Then get to the bottom of where the people stand. Open the meetings. Open the doors. Open the registers of the checks and where the money has gone and how the lawsuits have fared. And show it to everybody. You want to know what the stance of the convention is on how they should deal with women in ministry. Open all the books. Shine the light. Stop filibustering during your entity presentations where we we give this entity 30 minutes in our program, and they do a 20-minute presentation. They take questions from the convention for 10 minutes, of which they get the first question and talk for eight minutes on the answer to that question. Oh, what do you know? Shucks. At a time, no more time for questions. This isn't transparency. Which is why I joke that, you know, I'm there to do business. I'm not there for a worship service. If I want to go for a worship service, I'll go to a worship service. I'm sure there's lovely churches in the Nashville area that will be glad to have multiple services on Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday night. I'm there to do business. I would rather not have a praise band 
performing filler music for 10 minutes every hour, hour and a half, and extend that time for actual discussion, disagreement, air out all the dirty laundry. I, as an example from the past, I was a uh, I was a pastor of a church that had an old sanctuary. This was just one of those bizarre situations that, again, you want to talk about no win here? This is one of those. They had a building built. Their, their church sanctuary was built in 1900. They had an education building behind it that was built in the 1940s. And they had been given money in the late 90s. One of the members of a church was an actual executive at a bank and left the church a pile of money conditioned on the fact that it was used to build a new sanctuary. Couldn't use it to repair the old one that was a century old. Had to be used for a new one. So the church sat on it and sat on it and sat on it. And after three years, if they didn't use the money, then it was going to revert to the community college library. And so they finally, look, we can't repair this building. We can't use this money to repair the building. We don't have the money to repair the building. You know, they had asbestos in it, all this, all this stuff. They, they just didn't, didn't have the, the, uh, the finances. They built the monster. They built this sanctuary that seated 400 people, and it was massive. I always got a kick at it. We had a, sa- a sanctuary that seated 450 f- people with vaulted 50-foot ceilings, and we had about 75 people on a Sunday morning. It's kind of entertaining some days. Um, but with that, what do you do with the old building? They didn't tear it down and make it a parking lot because it had sentimental value. I mean, we still, I, we still had people on the deacon board whose grandparents like had laid the bricks of the foundation of that old sanctuary. So what do you do with it? And we had... Um, a grant from a community revitalization program that they were going to give us, I think it was an initial investment of like $80,000 to go towards the renovation of the building. And then there would be paperwork to fill out. We could reapply for the grant for years in order to refurbish that building. So we had to decide what to do with it. We had a two-hour-long special business meeting. I think it was on a Sunday night. It might have been a Wednesday night. I don't even remember. Where... We, we talked, and everything was on the table. We're going to fill out the forms. We're going to get this grant money. We're going to turn it into a, a wedding chapel. We're going to turn it into a library. We're going to turn it into a dance hall. We're going to turn it into a school. We're going to tear it down and turn it into a parking lot. Now, you throw all those options out in a meeting, and you're talking about salt of the earth, Southern Baptist Convention people. There's going to be a difference of opinion. And you know how we handled it? <clears throat> I made a point. I set up multiple microphones. Because I didn't, and we passed mics around. If you came to the meeting, and if you didn't come to the meeting, shame on you. But if you came to the meeting, nobody left without speaking. And I told him, I said, and I normally our deacon chair moderated the meeting. I told him I would moderate it because I thought maybe everybody would behave better if I was up there instead of him. Um, and, and flat out said, if you're here, you're going to talk. We want the input because I don't want any vote taken without anybody speaking, and I want any decision made without everybody knowing exactly where everybody stands. And some of the people were like, I just want to burn it down and make a parking lot because that's what we need, and that's what should be happened to it, and we don't need anything else. And other people were like, we need to retrofit it and make it look like it. I mean, there was every gambit, and we did that, and it was good. Because it was transparent and it was open. All the flaws, all the warts, all out in the open. This is what the Southern Baptist Convention needs to do in regards to our issues. We, this is why I've said before um, when we've talked about this, had not having a meeting last year was the worst thing that could have happened to the convention. Because we didn't get to air our laundry. We didn't get to argue and fight about this stuff. And sometimes you need a healthy argument and a fight and healthy disagreement. You need to deal with it. And this is what we have to do, but we have to do it openly, honestly, and transparently where we're not running out of time and we're not pulling punches and we're not hustling through so that we can't figure out what's going on. Everybody needs to know where everybody stands. 
because I came back from the convention in Dallas in 2018. Dallas was not that contentious. There were issues, but it was not that contentious. And I told my congregation, paying attention to the mood of the room and the way things were going, I told my church when I came back and and reported on it, I said, the seeds have been sown that within five years, you could see a large number of Southern Baptist churches, Southern Baptist Convention churches no longer being Southern Baptist Convention. And I said, anywhere between three to five years, you'll start to see it. I'm pretty close. I was pretty close. And again, sometimes it's like, I mean, like, like the, uh, in Dallas, the big contentious issue was Mike Pence. Um, Mike Pence wanted to speak, and we let him speak, and I thought that was a disaster. Now, there was another group of pastors there in Messengers that thought it was a disaster that Mike Pence speak. And the reason they thought it was a disaster that Mike Pence speak was because they thought he represented a racist presidential office and a racist president, and our members are— Our Southern Baptist Convention brothers and sisters of color were offended and downcast and looked down upon by inviting this racist to speak. I think that's ridiculous, flat out ridiculous. I don't want Pence to speak because I don't want the Southern Baptist Convention to be aligned with a political party. I want us to be aligned with biblical faithfulness and truth, and I want us to tell Republican politicians when they do something good that, hey, that was a good job, and I want us to tell Republican politicians when they do something dumb that, hey, that was dumb, and what's the rule? Don't do dumb things. Likewise, I want to tell Democratic politicians when they do something good, hey, good job, and when they do something dumb, if they're a Democrat, I want to say, hey, that was dumb. Don't do dumb things. I want to call balls and strikes and proclaim gospel truth because that's how we stand above the fray, the right way, standing on a biblical foundation. We weren't doing that. So seeing that divide made it worse when you get to the Resolution 9 in Birmingham, makes it something even more difficult to deal with because we weren't dealing with a category of information that a lot of people had. They do now, and there's arguments on both sides. Look, I am an anti-CRT person. I understand the argument from CRT people. I have had it with them. I had a discussion with my uh, the executive director of our state convention where I vehemently disagreed with him. But I understood the argument. I thought there's a better way to handle it without falling into the worldly categories that critical theory proposes. I think there's a better way to deal with the problems that we have. And I hope that's what comes out of this convention. But it's not going to come out if we don't actually go in there with eyes wide open, mouths wide open, and ears wide open. And no, we can't use them all at the same time. So when it's time to listen, we got to have ears wide open and listen to what's being said and how it's being said. Likewise, when it's time to speak... We need to reclaim everything, get it all out there, leave nothing on the table so that everybody knows what's going on. There is nothing left to be said when we are finished. So if you are somewhat interested, pay attention. Read the press clippings of nothing else from Baptist Press. Download the app and follow along the live stream if you get an opportunity. It'd be a worthwhile observance because, you, again, you'll get to see. You can mark on the program. You don't have to listen to watch the whole thing, but you can mark on the program the, the times of business and the resolutions and the voting and, and pay attention to what's going on in the room during those times. And, again, look for honesty and transparency. And if you don't get it, then decide accordingly. My church is going to be doing that. We're going to be deciding accordingly. If we don't get answers to questions and we're not comfortable with the level of transparency or lack thereof that we're seeing from the convention, this may be my last convention because this may be the last opportunity that 
we have as a church to participate because we're not going to give our money to an organization that's going to lie to us. And we're not going to give our money to an organization that's going to be fast and loose with the truth, whether that's on critical theory or whether that's on orthodoxy or whether that's on biblical fidelity or whether that's on how we treat abuse victims. We're we're not going to partner with that darkness. We're just not. So how this goes, and, and again, not just what is done, but how it's done will be determinative. So pay attention, see what's going on, make your decisions, and even if you're not SBC, $11.5 billion in receipts for those churches, $455 million in cooperative finance. Any organization that's wielding 11 plus billion and is throwing around cooperatively half a billion dollars is worth paying attention to. They have vast impact on the kingdom, both in this country and around the world. So pay attention to the SBC. It will do you good. Questions, comments, complaints, send them to info at practicaltheologyministries.com. If I have said something that didn't make any sense to you, you want clarification, send it, info at practicaltheologyministries.com. If you pay attention to the convention and you have a question about something and you want me to explain it, send me the same info. I'll be glad to explain to you what's going on. If you want to get a read of the room, let me know. I'll be glad to help you out. Hopefully this is an edifying time for Baptists. Hopefully we don't try to be holier than thou and try to, you know, out-Jesus juke each other, but that we get down to brass tacks, roll up our sleeves, deal with our issues, and leave with an actual response and a plan. Anything less than that, I think, is failure of epic proportions, even if we call ourselves really spiritual while doing it. We failed if we can't actually answer these things. So let's shine the light. That's what Jesus calls us to do. And let's walk in faithfulness. Until we meet again, read your Bible. It'll do you good. Bye.